Well, this is a, the month of June, which is uh, the month for weddings, I think. Sherry and I will celebrate our 42nd anniversary tomorrow. So, quite a long time. And um, how, many, how many of you were married in June? To see your hands? Lots of you. That's, the problem is I see some women going, wives going like this and some men going. <laughs> you may need to talk later. What changes on the wedding day? What kind of things change the, the wedding day, the, the moment of the, the ceremony? There are a number of things which, which change. The uh, name changes. Uh, generally, she takes on his last name. Their address changes, where they're going to live from now on. Um, most importantly, their tax status changes. Um, their responsibility changes as a man takes on the responsibility of a wife and um, all that's involved with that and she has responsibility for him for, so the level of responsibility is different well um, there, there's a lot of things that, that change on the wedding day that we, we need to be aware of so let me help you think in contemporary context the kind of thing that's going on. If you've seen a, um, a bride coming down the aisle, or maybe you have been one of those, I, not having been in that position myself, as a, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, you know. I'm wondering, what are they, what are they thinking? Well, I, I figured it out. Here's what they're thinking as they're coming down the aisle. So they're, they're walking down this long aisle and everyone's watching them and, and they're looking at the aisle, right? The aisle in front of them. Sometimes it's got a nice cloth or something in front of, you know, that they're walking down. So they see the aisle. Then, then they look up and they see the altar. And then they look over there and they see him. Right? And then... I just want to warn you that's a, that is exactly what they're thinking. I'll alter him. <laughs> so today, today as we look at Romans 7, we're, we're going to see uh, some changes that take place on the Christian's wedding day that is the day that we are united with the bridegroom Christ now um, usually we think of the church as the bride of Christ that is the universal church the whole church is the bride of Christ and that's the normal way that the, the uh, Bible speaks about it and that's how we should normally think about it but in this passage Paul brings it down to a more personal individual level level and that is that you become part of the bride of Christ so in a sense your wedding day is the day you you came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior he became your bridegroom in, in that sense in that moment and so some very important changes took place on that wedding day that salvation day that that moment of transitioning from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light when you became part with him. So Romans chapter 7 verse 1 through 6 is what we're going to look at today. Uh, just to remind you of the previous context, if you just look back for a moment to Romans chapter 6 verse 14. This... Uh, extremely important statement in verse 14 that for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law but under grace and what a great summation of uh, the passage of Romans 5 6 and 7 you are not under law but under grace and then from verses 15 through 23 Paul is talking about what it means now that you are under grace. What is life like now that you, 
you are under grace. But he goes back in chapter 7 to what does it mean now that you are not under law? So he's explaining those two things in these, these verses. 15 through 23, uh, under grace. Chapter 7 is what it means to not be under law. Specifically, a question that needs to be addressed here is what part does the law play in the life of a believer? How, how are we to view the law? What part does the law have in our life today? Well, we're going to take the next three weeks to look at uh, what Paul says here in chapter 7. Today, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 6. So, um, let's, let's start by reading 1 through 4. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound to, by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another." To him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So our first point here is our marriage to Christ. And we'll look at the, the principle, verse 1, the, the illustration in verses 2 and 3, and the application in verse 4. The principle, verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know Law. Now, the, the Greek text does not have the uh, definite article in front of I taken law in general, not just the... Though they would have known that too, uh, the Jewish Christians, but even the Roman law, people who know law. Uh, for, speak to those who know law that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So here's the basic idea. The, the basic thought of the passage is the legal principle that death cancels all contracts. That, that's the principle that's being established here in verse 1, illustrated and applied for us then later. That death cancels all contracts. So... For example, let's say you contracted with a man to uh, come over to your, um, your property next Saturday and to, to mow your lawn. But the man dies on Thursday and you've contracted with him to come next Saturday. Well, if you're still expecting the, that man to show up, there's, there's something terribly wrong. He, he's not going to be there. And, and you understand that Okay, that's not going to happen. Death cancels all contracts. Now, that's the, the basic idea, the principle here that Paul is going to build upon. Uh, well, how does it relate to, to marriage? Uh, and, and how we are to, to think of it here in this passage? Well, in a sense, the old man is married to the law. We are under the law and our obligation to the law. And he's using... The, the analogy of being, us being married to the law um, in our old life. Now, just a point of clarification here about this passage in Romans 7. That this passage is not intended to teach about marriage, uh, divorce, or remarriage. or uh, it, That's not the intent of the passage. So, although it's talking about marriage and so forth, this would not be a place to go to to form your theology of, of marriage and remarriage and so forth. It, it does have some things that it, it talks about, but it's not the core teaching. So, 
Remember that the purpose of the teaching is to talk to us about being married to Christ. Okay, so it's just using marriage as an analogy. And even then, if we think about the analogy, you can't, you can't press all the points of this. Um, for instance, being, it presents being married to the law as a negative thing, but in real life, being married is not a negative thing. It's a blessing that God gives. And uh, Sherry and I have 42 years now of, of that blessing. Well, I have 42. She has 17. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so we can't press the details too far here. So to go back to our illustration, the, since the old man is married to the law, the, the old man, the unsaved man, is under dominion to the law, under the lordship of the law, as long as he lives, unless something happens to break that. And in this case, death is what happens to break that contract. So a, a death has to take place. So now, with that basic thought of the passage in mind that, the, that death cancels all contracts let's look at the illustration that Paul gives in verses 2 and 3 <clears throat> for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives but if the husband dies she is released from the law of her husband. So the, the first part of, of this illustration that death cancels all contracts shows us that that extends even to as personal and as intimate as a marriage union. So if her husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. In other words, she's free to remarry as He's going to bring out in verse 3. So then, if, if it's the case while, that while her husband is still living, uh, she marries another man, well, she's going to be called an adulteress in that case. Say, let's say she leaves him and hooks up with some other guy and marries him. She will be an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She is free from that law so that she is no adulteress though she has married another man. So this was a, a law that was understood if the, if the spouse dies, the remaining spouse is, is uh, free to remarry. Um, but these verses take us a step further than just that the death cancels the contract and that the person is free to remarry but they, these verses also set up an important idea in verse 4 that severance from one contract is what enables us to enter into another contract and that's what verse 4 is going to be about see it's not only that we are dead to the law it's not enough to be dead to the law we have to be married to another, joined to another, under dominion and lordship of another Lord who is Christ. So both things have to happen. It's not the, so it's not just the death of the spouse in the analogy, it's the marrying another spouse in the analogy, that entering into another contract. So now let's go to verse 4 where, where we will spend the bulk of our time. <clears throat> Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who had, was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And we're going to look at this uh, just kind of bit by bit here. The word therefore um, is an inference which is drawn from verses 1 through 3 purpose of the word therefore is to uh, to say this is how this applies to us that's what it's alerting us to verse 4 is starting with a, a word that should make us think okay this is how this is going to apply to us today therefore <clears throat> my brethren 
a reminder that he is talking to believers. And this is important that, that he's, he's signaling out here believers because non-believers are still under the burden of the law and the law has dominion over them and sin has dominion over them. So <clears throat> this in no way applies to people in general. This is only applicable to believers. Therefore, my brethren, you also... I want you to take this personally, Paul is saying. This applies to you. Therefore, you, my brothers and my sisters in Christ, you also have become dead. That is a past passive. It's important to note as we have before in especially chapter 6, the, that's past tense. It's something that's already happened and it's passive. It's something that happened to you. So to you also, want you yourselves, you individually to think of this. This is something that in the past happened to you by the grace of God. As Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that though you were dead in your sins, yet he has made you alive. You have become dead. I, I think the New American Standard puts it the strongest and the best. New American Standard translates this. You also were made to die. A reminder that it is God himself who brought this about for you. You also were made to die. And therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law and this of course is the central point that Paul is talking about you have you have become dead to the law therefore that that law is canceled that contract of the law over you the dominion of the law over you is canceled now a couple things to note about this you've become dead to the law uh, first main thing to point out is uh, just a flow of thought here in the book of Romans so far. In, verse, in, excuse me, in chapters 1 through 3, the focus was on the condemnation that comes when the law is disobeyed. Remember how clearly Romans 1 and 2 and 3 talked about our former sin and how we were all sinners and all under the just condemnation. So the focus of chapters 1 through 3 the condemnation that comes when the law is di disobeyed. But now in chapters 5 through 8, the focus is different. The focus is on the failure of the law to deal with the problem of sin. Keep that in mind as we study through this. The focus is on the failure of the law to deal with the problem of sin. Now, we see that expressed um, very directly for us in chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son, and so forth. But what the law could not do, the law was, was unable to do anything about the sin problem. Not that the law was bad, it was just not able. It was not designed to take care of the sin problem. Now, um, an illustration, this hammer is a fine tool for driving nails and especially for fingernails. I've gotten quite a few fingernails with a hammer. But... I've also found out it doesn't work that well with fixing my computer. <laughs> I, I've a number of times I wanted to take this to my computer. Yeah. Uh, but um, it would not be an effective tool. That's not what it's designed for. Now, the same thing with the law. The law is good and useful, and God gave it on purpose for a purpose. But that purpose was not to deal with the problem of sin. That was never the purpose of the law. 
Uh, the law was never intended to be used as a means of righteousness. Now that, that was a shift of thinking for the Jews. Because you see, they had come to think of the law as, first of all, I, this is God's holy standard. He handed down on that mountain. He wrote on tablets of stone and he, he gave us this law. It's his standard. And then they made an inference from that. Okay, if this is God's standard, then for me to be righteous, I just have to keep this standard. And the, the more I keep this, then the more righteous I am, and then I can be closer to God. That was never the intent of the law. The, the law was never intended uh, to bring righteousness as a means of righteousness. Look back at Romans chapter 3. Verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin the the knowledge of sin and as you'll see next week even more but the law does not bring righteousness it was never intended to be the means of righteousness so that's a a real shift in thinking for the Gentiles, but I believe a shift in thinking also for us. I mean, it was a shift in thinking for the Jews, but it is also for us as non-Jews, a shift in thinking. If you were to ask the ordinary person out there today, what do you think uh, needs to be done for you to be able to get to heaven? How does a person get to heaven? How could you get to heaven? What, what do you think they would say? 90% of the time, they give a works answer, don't they? Well, I try to be good enough. I'm not perfect, but I try to be better than my neighbor, or I try to love my neighbor, or I, I try to do good things, and that's usually the answer given. What they're saying is, I'm trying to meet some kind of a standard that I hope will be acceptable to God in that day. And God has given no such standard and no one could ever attain it if he did. No one could live completely a righteous life except for Christ. So the intent of the law never was to save. Uh, to have salvation, to have a right relationship with God has always been by faith. As Paul pointed out, pre-law time before the Mosaic law when Abraham lived Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as faith and that's a main point in the book of Galatians isn't it that it's by faith that, that Abraham came it's by faith that we come to know God it's not by showing God how good we are but admitting how bad we are and coming in faith to him that's the point of the book of Galatians now, one way to think of this is the difference between the law and faith as uh, ways of, of viewing things. The law is a mirror which reflects what is wrong with me. But faith is a window that reveals what is right with God. The law is a mirror. As I look at the law... It shows, it reflects what is wrong with me. It doesn't tell me how good I am. It shows me how bad I am. The law is a mirror that reflects what's wrong with me. But faith is a window that shows me what is right with God. And he is my only hope. If I see what's wrong with me, what's right with God. I go from law and condemnation to faith by grace. And how Christ answered the problem of sin. So the first part of this being dead to sin is that the focus of is on the failure of the law to deal with the problem of sin. Um, now, 
another point here is that to be dead to the law means to be dead to the rule or the dominion of the law which is um, Paul's point of the illustration in verses 2 and 3 of Romans 7 the, the analogy of if a woman is married to a man and he dies then she is free to marry another so um, to be dead to the law means to be dead to the rule or dominion of the law but it does not mean that the believer has nothing to do with the law it's not like we just throw the law away what, what do we do with the law how, do, how are we to think of the law well um, Pastor Jeremy is going to address that more next week in, in his passage but I, just a couple things to get your think process going here look at chapter 1 verse 2 <clears throat> well might as well start at verse 1 here Romans 1 1 Paul a slave of Jesus Christ called an apostle separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures well where in the holy scriptures in the Old Testament, right? In the law and in the prophets. So if we didn't have the Holy Scriptures, the things which were written before the New Testament, we wouldn't know these things. And in fact, in uh, Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, Luke 24, 44, he, he's talking to his disciples and says, These are the words which I spoke to you when I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses. So the law served a great purpose. Uh, chapter 3 verse 21 of Romans but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets God has established a righteousness in Christ is apart from the law in Christ but it is being witnessed by the law and the prophets the, the law and the prophets point to him and say look to him that's the answer all of it was preparatory anticipatory looking towards the cross and the savior and it's fulfilled in him he is the, the end of the law as Paul says and what about a a passage like the um, first passage we, Sherry and I had our children memorize when I would commend to you if you have children Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right honor your father and mother <clears throat> which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long upon the earth But what do, we, what do we to make of that? Especially Ephesians 6, 2. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment. First part of the law. It was part of the big ten, right? So does the law apply to us or not? What is Paul saying here? No, no longer under the law. It's not how we relate to, to Christ. But by the way, honor your father and mother. And How are we to think about this? This is a thorny issue which another pastor will straighten out next week. Really, he's got a tough passage, uh, verse 7 through 12. But hopefully between the two of these, uh, it'll start becoming clearer to us. Um, here's one way to think about it. Keeping with the theme of, of marriage. When a young lady gets married, she comes under the headship of her husband. Now, before she is married, she is under the headship of her father, or should be. So, 
She's as a young lady living at home under the headship of her father. But when she gets married, she comes under the headship of her father, right? I mean, of her husband. <laughs> so she leaves the headship of her father to become under the headship of her husband. Now, what's her relation to her father? It's not one of headship, but it's honor. Is she still to honor her father? Well, sure. But she's not under the dominion of her father. She still honors him. She's under the headship of her husband. And I think that's uh, similar to our, how we are to view these things. We are not under dominion of the law. We're under the dominion of Christ, praise God. Because we honor what God has said in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And they have much to teach us. And they help us even to see how we should celebrate Christ even more. Okay, so you therefore, my brethren, have become dead to sin. Now the next part is through the body of Christ. Um, the word through indicates that this is the way or the, the instrument by which the believer is put to death. Through the body of Christ. We are put to death to the law, in fact, as we are crucified with Christ. So, what does he mean and why does he say it that way? Well, first of all, uh, we are dead to the law through the body of Christ refers to how it happened by means of the, the physical crucifixion of the body of Christ. That's how it happened. And if you go back to uh, Romans chapter 6, uh, just looking at a, a few verses here to remind ourselves, Romans 6, 3, or, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we identify with his death. Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And especially note verse 6 here, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. So we, are, we identify with the crucifixion of Christ through the body of Christ, his crucifixion. We are crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. So through his body, so that the body of sin might be done away with. I think Paul is purposely using those similar phrases. In, uh, as you say in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four in the communion passage, Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. It's through his body and the crucifixion of his body that we relate to him. Well, why say it this way? Why not just say through the, through the cross of Christ? Or why not just say through the crucifixion? Why say through the body of Christ? And um, I think perhaps, um, as I mentioned before, uh, um, in keeping with chapter 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away. So it, keeping that parallel thought there, but um, also verse 5 in Romans 7, which we haven't uh, gotten to yet. But because of the way he's going to word this next, for when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members, in our physical body, uh, which we present, we used to present to sin for unrighteousness, <clears throat> uh, to bear fruit to death. So, um, because Paul makes a reference to our physical body in verse 5, maybe why he makes reference to the physical body of Christ in verse 4. And we note, remember that Christ, of course, was fully human, having a real physical body, able to suffer and to die on our behalf. Yet, in his body, he was without sin. Okay, uh, moving on now. Um, 
in verse 4 you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another the word that indicates the purpose of what has happened you've become dead to the law so something has separated you from the dominion of the law you become dead to it through crucifixion with Christ that here's the purpose the reason and the and the point is the same as verses 1 through 3 that you may be married to another that's why Paul used the analogy he did earlier that death to the dominion of the law enables you now to live under Christ to be married to another under the headship now of Christ so it frees you to then be married this is what happens on your your spiritual wedding day your spiritual birthday when when you come when you came to know Christ you died to sin and you were that made you available to be married to Christ which you were in the instant that you believed uh, that you may be married to him that is to Christ <clears throat> and Paul puts it this way to him who was raised from the dead um, so he had talked about the, the body that was given for us but also he's pointing to the rest of the gospel the, the resurrection of Christ and I believe he, po- he does this to point emphatically to Christ to him who was raised from the dead and I think to put it this way in order to seal and uh, confirm to us that, that this relationship this marriage to Christ this bond with Christ will never be severed it will never end the relationship with the law came to end that marriage relationship so to speak that was severed that ended by death but nothing not even death can bring the end of your relationship with Christ. Nothing can take you from his hand. And as Romans 8 says, nothing angels or depths or death or anything is going to be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing will ever end that relationship with him. Um, That we should bear fruit for God. Which brings us to the next point. <clears throat> our fruit to God now we were married to him that we should bring fruit to him so what happens on our spiritual wedding day when we embrace the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf well, we were eternally joined to him so that we are in Christ forever what what happened in that moment now enables us to bear fruit to or for God in fact notice that this is given as a purpose statement so two purpose statements in a row that you may be married to another that is to Christ and here's the further purpose statement that you may bear fruit to God not just united with Christ, but bearing fruit for the glory of God. By our union with Christ, we are set free from the old life and the, the dominion of sin to really live for Him, have spiritual life for our Lord. Now, Paul talks about the old fruit here in verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. <clears throat> he had previously talked about that in chapter 6 the, the, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed chapter 6 verse 20 for instance um, Paul says when we were in the flesh back at that time when we were in the flesh well I don't know about you but I'm still covered in flesh you know, as I look at my body there's still flesh all over it so what does he mean by when you were in the flesh In the book of Romans, Paul always uses the term flesh as the opposite for being in the spirit. To be in the flesh is the opposite of being in the spirit. Look, for example, at um, chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. 
that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So the flesh is being used here uh, as the opposite in, in contrast with walking in the Spirit. So when you walked in the flesh, in other words, it's a way of thinking about that. Um, it does not mean simply our physical being, but uh, how we used to live. Um, being in the flesh is something that um, all non-believers are ruled by and all believers are delivered from. So when we were in the flesh, the, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So how does the law arouse our sinful passions? They're not only under the dominion of the law, it seems like the law makes things even worse. Uh, <clears throat> there's an interesting illustration of this, I think, in Pilgrim's Progress of uh, how the law does this. Um, in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes interpreter's house. This is interpreter's house which Pilgrim enters uh, during the course of his journey to the celestial city. Now the parlor, the parlor of the house was completely covered with dust. And when a man took a broom and started to sweep, he and the others in the room began to choke from the great clouds of dust that were stirred up. The more vigorously he swept, the more suffocating the dust became. Then interpreter ordered a maid to sprinkle the room with water with which the dust was quickly washed away. Interpreter explained to Pilgrim that the parlor represented the heart of an unsaved man. The dust was original sin. The man with the broom was the law and the maid with the water was the gospel. Interpreter's point was that all that the law can do is stir sin up. Only the gospel can wash it away. So the law, sin is, is there, but the law just kind of stirs things up and we just choke on it. It can expose it, it can highlight it, it stirs it up, but it can't deal with it. Only the gospel can deal with sin. Or to uh, quote Matthew Henry. He says, The law, by commanding, forbidding, and threatening corrupt and fallen man, but offering no grace to cure and strengthen, did but stir up the corruption. And like the sun shining upon a dunghill, excite and draw up the filthy steams. So the law is like the sun shining down on a pile of dung. And what does the, the sun is good, right? Sunlight's a great thing, but what does it do? It just excites and stirs up the, uh, the filthy steams that would rise from it. He goes on to say, we being lamed by the fall, the law comes and directs us, but provides nothing to heal and help our lameness. So that, and so makes us halt and stumble the more. So we used to bear old fruit when we were under sin and the law, but now we are called to bear new fruit, and in fact, fruit unto God. So we have our marriage to Christ, our fruit to God, and lastly, our service in the Spirit. Verse um, 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Now, rather than look at those two separately, I, I think we're intended to see them together and to maintain the, the contrast that is in view here, the oldness of the letter, the, the newness of the Spirit. And the first and most obvious contrast is between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
The old covenant governed by the law, the new covenant, we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. Uh, the letter of the old covenant, that which was written on tablets of stone, which could never redeem anyone, compared to the spirit of the new covenant, that which is written on the hearts of believers, which leads us to bear fruit for God and service in the spirit. It's interesting that in chapters 6 and 7, the Holy Spirit is mentioned just this one time in both chapters. So this is a key reference to the, the Spirit here, which becomes um, the main point of chapter 8, because it's found just one time in chapters 6 and 7, but the Spirit is mentioned 21 times in chapter 8 alone. So we see the shift that's about to come that Paul is preparing for us. Preparing us for, I mean. Um, by contrast, in chapter 7, the law is mentioned 23 times. Spirit mentioned once, the law 23 times in chapter 7. And uh, the law is only mentioned five times in Romans 8. So, it's the letter of the law contrasted with the, the spirit of the law. It's not just the old and new covenants that are contrasted, but the letter of the law contrasted with the, the spirit of the law. So we are released from the letter of the law in order to serve in the spirit. Now, that is true. We're released from the letter of the law. You are not expected to keep the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, the Old Testament, the, uh, the civil law. You, you are not bound to those. You're not under those. You are rather under the spirit of the law. But keep this in mind that the spirit of the law is more demanding than the letter of the law we can keep sometimes the letter of the law without really keeping the spirit of the law which is what really what the Jews tried to do um, let's say if your boss said to you I, I need you to be in early tomorrow morning to work on this project and so you, you normally come in at 8 a.m. That's when you clock in, 8 a.m. But your boss says, I need you to be in early tomorrow morning to work on this project. So you clock in at 7.59. Are you early? According to the letter of the law, you are. But how about the spirit of it? Not really. Because you know what they meant, right? Well, that's how it is with this. Yeah, we're, we're not bound to the letter of the law, but much more. Look at Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're almost done, so just hang with me for a couple more minutes. We look at a couple samples here. <clears throat> Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Does that sound familiar? It's also one of the big ten, right? You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is that easier or harder, Standard? It's, it's a harder. See, it's not just the letter of the law. It's, it's the spirit of the law. What did God really intend by this? So if we look at how God prepared for that, that kind of a statement back in verse 17 of the same chapter, Matthew 5. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He, he is the fulfillment of the law, and he did fulfill the law. And in verse 20 he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to be beyond even what those people who think they are keeping the law are doing. You have to exceed the best. Well, how good do I have to be? Verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So God lays before us this standard, not the law, 
but perfection. Perfection is found only in His Son. And we cling to Christ and the cross. We plead nothing on our own behalf. How we are saved is not through the law, but through the body of Christ crucified. How we relate to God is not through the law, but through, through Christ and through grace. And now, how we live for God is not by the law, but by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us a way to relate to you that does not depend upon our own goodness, ability, or effort. But we come before you as sinful people in need of a Savior. And Lord, you receive us that way. You have done all. You have completed all the righteous requirements of the law. You are our salvation. We pray that we would not look at our lives as a list of do's and don'ts and, and try to meet some artificial standard, but Lord, that we would look at our lives as completely given to you to whom we are married, our, our husband, our, the, um, our Lord, and that by your spirit, by the power and enablement of your spirit, we might walk in you and please you and bring glory to you. Thank you for the relationship that we have with you that can never end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, and we'll meet back here in about uh, another 10 minutes or so. For